Also, uh, kiddos, if you didn't know, there are some snacks in the back there and some magna tiles, so feel free to go back over that way and you can uh, eat your goldfish snack that you would normally get during your children's ministry time. And you can hang out back there. Parents, if your kids go over there and they play, that's totally fine. Let them do that. When we get to the communion part, I'll just ask that everybody come back in together uh, and we'll all take communion as a community. But for now, the kids are more than welcome to sit over there. There's magnet tiles and, and different things over there. So they can hang out on that rug. And if, as a parent, you need a kid that just has to move, the front room uh, inside those double doors is open and available for uh, parents to take their kids back there. You just have to stay with your kid or they will be fed coffee and pure raw sugar. So take it as you will. Um, we thank you guys for being here, and we are excited to celebrate and continue to stay in the Christmas season as we uh, are, are gathered to worship. And for some of you, uh, you may be like, why, why are we still singing Christmas tunes? And uh, why, are we, why do we still have the Christmas tree up and the lights and the wreath? And that's because we, uh, as Mosaic, have really tried to embody and continue to embrace this idea that Christmas is not one day. Uh, we've talked about it for several years now. That the, the idea is, is that the 12 days of Christmas were meant to start on Christmas Day and continue to be celebrated up until Epiphany. And as we here collectively, as the people called Mosaic, have attempted to uh, embrace and, and move through the calendar that the church observes and looks at, which we call the liturgical calendar, we have attempted to try to sit in this Christmas season and invite you into that. Because what we want to say is that it is more than just ripping open some presents and then throwing the boxes out and packing everything up and moving on. But something like the birth of Jesus deserves for us to sit in it and to continue to celebrate and continue to find our way towards this manger and, and to sit in front of it. Because we don't always understand it. We said this on the night of our Christmas service. That this is the same way that poetry works, uh, to quote T.S. Eliot. He says that sometimes poetry is... Uh, is evoking feeling it, it gives you kind of something like a response before it's truly understood and the manger is like this jesus is like this it's, it's something that we continue to maybe feel something towards be moved by it evokes something within you even if you can't understand it all and i think in, in some ways it demands that even those of us that have been following the lord for some time that we continue to place ourselves before jesus before the manger and that's what we want to do in a moment like christmas is to hold that before us. And so we put ourselves in a text like Luke 2, continuing from the classic birth narrative that we're all so familiar with. This, this moment, this space where we see Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus moving, doing something. The, the narrative continues, but we're still not to Jesus that's teaching and the prophet and the, the sage wisdom person that we oftentimes want Jesus to be, this really clean kind of put together whatever we want to make him out to be. But it's this messy Jesus. One of the kids in our, uh, I put this in an email, one of the kids in our community, the, the parents texted in this, and it was really funny. He said, did, did Jesus poop in his diaper? And I, and so somebody responded, yeah, 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 whatever. And I was like, this is it. Like, this is, this is Advent. This is Christmas. The, this is the incarnation. He did. He had stinky diapers, poopy diapers, and they were messy and smelly. And Mary and Joseph had to change them. And this is the Messiah, the King, the one that we're looking to, the one that all of our hopes and fears are met in, in that Christmas night. That Luke 2 is talking about, the Messiah, the King. And this is where this passage picks up. 
some small things when Drew was reading that you maybe uh, didn't notice that, you're, that Luke's trying to push us towards. It's like the, the humanity of it all. And not just the humanity, but like the inverse ideas of where you think the Messiah and the King should be coming from. If you've been watching The Crown, you know, like, like royal people don't come from poverty. Royal people don't come from backwoods places. And if somebody from the backwoods tries to get into the royal family, they snuff it out as fast as they can, right? Because that's not what royalty does. That's not what leadership does. And yet what Luke wants you to see is that Jesus is from the backwoods. He's not from Mountain Brook and Homewood and Birmingham. He's from the sticks, the schools with bad ratings, right? Like the, the places that people kind of pretend like don't exist. He's from where I'm from in southwest Indiana where there's no stoplights in your hometown. And then you just kind of drive through cornfields for miles and then you end up in a house and you call that the city because there's two houses that can see each other. So like obviously that's an urban population. This is where Jesus is from. And we see this, it talks about that they were meant to come and to give a sacrifice to celebrate the birth of their child. And they bring this sacrifice and it says because they were poor, they couldn't give the sacrifice that everybody else gave. So there was a modification made for them. These two turtle doves, these doves that they give as a way of saying that they're, they're giving something. So we see the humanity in it, this, this upside-down nature of it, this messiness, this thing that, like, this isn't where you would expect the Messiah to come from. This isn't who you would expect to be the one that would rule and reign. And what Luke is trying to start to signal early on in this story, he's setting it all so that the action can take place beyond Luke 2, right? is he's setting the stage for us to get and to understand that the thing that will be challenging for all the uh, encounter Jesus is that this isn't the way you expect it to look. This isn't the way you expected it to go. It's not supposed to be a baby that holds the hopes and fears, right? Babies can't hold hopes and fears. Babies invoke hope and fear, right? Like they, they, if you've been a new parent, we look at Wes and Whitney here on the front row. Like, I mean, that first time you hold that firstborn child of yours, or if you've ever babysat for the first time, I can remember this in high school, and I was like, oh, crap, what did I get into? Like, this is, a, this is bad, but I'm getting money for it, so I'm excited, and I had hopes for all the things I was going to spend it on. But there's this hope and this fear and when, when you hold a baby that, that is invoked within you, that is caused by it, and yet this baby is the one that is going to hold the hopes and the fears of all the years within itself. Mary and Joseph's parenting, their stewarding of this child means something to us. Just a quick aside, I would say, too, that we see here a beautiful tradition of dedicating babies to the Lord, which we're going to get to do today, which is very exciting. We'll talk about that at the end of the service. But there's this way in which there's a faithfulness. There's this way in which there's an idea that we see Mary and Joseph being the parents of what is to be the Messiah, the one that is fulfilling the prophecies, that there's a simple faithfulness, that they're still just practicing the everyday customs and rituals of the people of God. And if they wouldn't do that, many of these things wouldn't have come to be. It's not in the, the, the massive emotive moments, the, the skies parting, you know, the spirit descending, falling upon and tongues of fire that we're going to see in Pentecost. 
It's just this really simple thing of, of two parents that are kind of poor, probably exhausted. I bet they woke up that morning and were like, I really don't want to go to the temple. It'd be much easier to just stay at home. They're just going to cry and make a mess and be loud and cause problems. It's going to be a long journey. You're going to have to carry them. They're going to get tired, especially if Jesus was a big baby, you know, he'd really wear you out. But yet they go. There's a simple faithfulness, a continuation of what you're supposed to be doing as the people. And it's what we're called to, that as life happens, as these monumental uh, changes in our life come, and as things progress, we continue to just kind of be faithful in the small things. I think it's an encouraging word to a room full of a whole bunch of parents and a bunch of people that might soon be parents. A bunch of people that are still trying to figure out what the rest of their life looks like as they're in college or just out of college. And you go, there are these massive shifts in life. And yet, what we get called to, what we see in this story in Luke, is that the vocation of the people of God is this simple faithfulness. And when you are simple and, and faithful and you hold to what God has called you to, you see that profound things get to take place and happen. It happens in the midst of the ordinary. And even in this, if you would, like, think about this. This temple that they're going to. It's in the middle of Roman occupation. This is a poor couple, probably a little bit embarrassed of the sacrifice that they're going to give. Not everyone's on board with all of this. You get the simplicity and kind of this, like, quiet, ordinary faithfulness in Simeon and Anna. Just there doing the things they do. Imagine Simeon feeling this burden in his heart, this thing that he's felt for a long time and wondering if it's ever going to take place. To those of you that are the few gray-haired people in the room, I think you can probably relate to this. This angst, right? This fear of like all the things that I thought life was going to bring me. Will they actually happen? And yet you see him continually just kind of being faithful to God and trusting Holding on. Same with Anna. There's this simplicity, this quietness, this patience. We don't like being patient. We don't like waiting. And yet you see them just faithfully waiting. And it's in that. And, and I love that the text, like it doesn't give a lot of details. It says that the Spirit spoke to them. The Spirit came and gave them a word. And there wasn't a lot of pomp and circumstance that you would expect. There was no coronation moment. And yet, in a lot of ways, this is what is happening. He's being named and marked as king. It's being passed to him. And there's this simplicity, this quietness. They just come to a, a normal worship service and just do a normal thing and offer a really measly sacrifice in what was probably a dirty, grimy situation. There was no lights. There was no news. There was no heralding and proclamation outside of those walls. They came together. They worshiped. They did the thing that the people of God are called to do. And God speaks and moves among them. And then they just kind of go home. Nothing starts yet. Nothing's begun. There's just seeds planted. Hopes and fears being met, being named, being addressed in a simplicity. And so you see this as they come... It should do something to us. It should encourage us that this is what is being asked of us. To be placed before the Christ child, the God-man, the one that has come, the Savior, the Messiah. It asks something of us, but it, it, it asks something kind of simple. 
and ordinary to continue in this faithfulness to God, to live and walk as he's called us to walk, and to know that along the way that the Spirit will intervene and do certain things, whether you're an old man or a young couple that is in controversy and seems to be kind of outside, or an old woman that has longed and experienced grief and heartache and has given her time to worshiping and praising the Lord. And here's what I love about this, that Luke, I don't know if Luke intended for us to get this, but for us in a modern day where we separate everything by demographics and, and age and you don't really hang out with different generations as much, multi-generations don't live in homes together anymore, uh, even churches, ours included, I lament that you know we, we kind of have a small demographic of age in a lot of ways. But here's what's beautiful, is that these people faithfully living before the Lord, like Simeon and Anna needed Mary and Joseph to do the thing that they did, to just kind of continue on in the way of the Lord and the people, and to do the faithful thing, the next thing. And Mary and Joseph needed Simeon and Anna to be the old wise prophets that they were, that didn't give up on life or didn't give up on the people behind them. They needed them to be there to speak words of hope and truth and words of sorrow. There's a reality in what Simeon says to this people that isn't the day after or the Sunday after a Christmas message that maybe makes us feel all the warm and fuzzies. There's an acknowledgement of the pain and the suffering and the sorrow that will take place in Jesus' life and in Mary's life. He promises her that she'll feel the stabs, the wounding, the heartache that will come. And this is because Jesus comes to take on our frame to experience the difficulty and the heartache of life that we experience. Because when he does that, it, it saves it, it redeems it, it renews it. And so Jesus comes in this way, and Luke wants us to see through the words of Simeon that this will not be something that is like, you know, Christmas Hallmark kind of story. This will be real. It'll be gritty. It'll be full of pain and suffering. And yet it will be good. And now, so they take Jesus, they move in this simplicity and in this faithfulness, they do the thing that they're supposed to do following after the Lord, they go to the temple, they present Jesus as they're supposed to, the Lord intervenes, speaks hope and joys to the people of God. These people that needed one another, the generations giving wisdom, speaking heartache and difficulty. And as they do this, you see that there's this moment where Jesus is dedicated given over to the people of God. He's purified. Now what's interesting is, is that Jesus didn't need purification, and yet he participates in it. It's kind of the same in his baptism, which we'll talk about next Sunday. In many ways, Jesus didn't need purified for himself, but, but yet in that moment he carries something with him, right? As old little town in Bethlehem says, and as I've repeated multiple times already here this morning, he carried with him the hopes and fears of all the years. Past, present, and future is what I love about that. There's this all-inclusiveness of that phrase of all the years. Not the years past, not the years in the moment, not just the years in the future, but all the years together. He is holding it. And in that, he's carrying that to that moment of purification. And in his baptism, when he comes to be washed clean and made anew, he is carrying with him not his own sins, not his own sorrows, 
but those of the people of God, our sins and our sorrows. He carries with them into that moment. Karl Barth says that he carries the sins of the world and is actually heavy laden, though he not carry his sins himself. He's the Christ that is needed, the child that is needed that Simeon holds, that Mary and Joseph walk away with. That in that moment of baptism, that it is the one that is needed, even though it is not needed for himself, but for all of the world. Because this is who Christ is. He needs in that moment to be able to give us the cleansing, the hope, the joy, the renewal, the reconnecting, the recentering, the restoring of our lives. He carries it all past and future. This story of Simeon and Anna that we see is a story that is our story now. It's a story that we are now connected to and participating in, and that all the years, that the language in Luke and in the language in the Christmas hymns, it is a way of which saying that this is still all connected. It is a historical event, but it is not left to history. We are brought into it, and this is now our story. And Simeon does this really amazing thing, that it's the first point in Luke's gospel that we get this, that it is not just the story for the people of Israel, but that it is to be for all nations, us here today, Gentiles, invited into this, that our story becomes their story of the people of God, and the promises and the hopes and the projections of the Messiah coming to rule and to reign. But there's this way in which what Jesus does is inverse and upside down, as Luke is trying to get us to see. That this one that will come, that will be the king and the Messiah, he does not come as one that looks mighty and powerful and in charge. But he comes as one that is a baby. And this projects the way that the kingdom will go. And as the band comes back up, we move into our next song and, and we begin the moment where we're going to come and receive the elements of communion. This is what we celebrate, that this king, Jesus, this Messiah, this upside down inverse nature, this way in which the hopes and fears are held inside of one baby, this one person that doesn't look like what we would have expected it to look like, continues throughout his life. It's a projection, it's a, it's a view, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus' life. We talk a lot about people and, and different people in power and, and different people that are over things. And we're very familiar with the rise and fall, right? The way that people that lead, that they have this meteoric rise and then they fall off. But what we see in Jesus and his story and what Luke is getting us to see is that there's a fall and then a rise that happens in the economy of the gospel and the way of the kingdom. In Jesus' life, there is sorrow, heartache, suffering, shame that is directed towards him, rejection. There's death, burial. Before there is life and eternity, continuation on. And so this is what we celebrate as we come to the table, that in many ways our lives are to be experienced in the same way, to embrace the sorrows, the difficulties, the hardships. And in so doing, we come to the table to acknowledge that there is life and that there is hope as we know that our sufferings shall be redeemed, that they will be healed, that there is still hope in the ordinary kind of outside of the box thinking in the back ways in the quiet subtle just faithful living of the people of God there's hope for us there's joy as we come again and again to these moments to worship to come again and again to the table to receive 
and to reflect and to acknowledge his goodness and his mercy. And so as the band plays this next song, I'll invite you to come and get a piece of bread and the cup. Like I said, families, uh, if you want to bring your kids up with you, that would be great. They're, they're more than welcome to come and receive from the table. At Mosaic, uh, we practice what is called an open table, where we invite all of those that would long to be near to Jesus, that would want to participate in this hope and this life, that would want to know what it means to have their fears and their hopes held together in tension and found in this Christ man. If you are stirred by this and you long to participate in the life of Jesus, we invite you to come and to receive the elements, to receive the bread and the cup broken and poured out for you. And as you come, you take the elements, you can hold on to those elements and go back to your seats. And at the end of the song, I'll come up and I'll lead us in the reception of those elements as we go through our liturgy and confession of sins. But I invite you in this moment, as we do something ordinary and routine that we do over and over again, as you are invited into a faithfulness in Christ, to come and to receive the gifts of God for the people of God.